Welcome back to our study of Mark's Gospel. And in this video, we're going to be taking a look at Mark chapter 15. I mean, that means that we are almost at the very end of the book. And while I would like to tell you that this, this study is going to be a, a really nice one and, you know, kind of a, a warm, fuzzy type feeling, that's not at all what it is. Because we know the story. We know that the very end of the story, that's where we get to the good news. But before we get to that good news, we have to go through some bad news. In fact, this is kind of a, a bit of a gloomy chapter. It's the chapter that, that if you remember, uh, what the religious leaders of Jesus' day have been plotting is a way to kill Jesus. And in this chapter, their plans succeed. Now, their plans only succeed because it's part of what our Heavenly Father has also planned. Now, of course, uh, the, the plans of our Father are much bigger than just the religious leaders of, of, uh, of Jesus' day. But from last chapter, part of what Jesus prayed in the garden was, he said in, in uh, verse 36 of last chapter, he said, Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That was Jesus' prayer. And we see that apparently it was part of God's plan, the Abba Father, as Jesus addresses him. It's part of the Father's plan for Jesus to take of this cup of suffering. And this is that suffering that he's going to endure. And we're going to be looking at that in Mark chapter 15 in this video. Let's look at the first five verses together. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, up to this point, what we've kind of seen is that, that there's been this illegal uh, trial, if you will. And, you know, I want to make sure that you recognize that I kind of put that in, in the, the quotations because it was, it was a mock trial. I mean, when you look at, at last chapter, and I, I brought these things out, you know, we see that they brought people who were bringing false testimony against Jesus. They couldn't even get their testimony to agree. So, I mean, I, when you're making up things, you'd think they'd be able to get them to agree, but they couldn't get anything to work out in their favor. And obviously some meeting at night in the house uh, of the, uh, the priest, uh, even the high priest, uh, that's not gonna be a, a legal type of meeting right there. So now they have this plan. They have this plan to bring Jesus before Pilate. But what are they going to say? Well, now, apparently what they're going to do is they're going to throw this back um, on Jesus whenever he accepted about being the king. Now they're going to really kind of accuse him of that. There's so many things in this chapter um, that point to Jesus being this king, you know, and that that's what really, uh, that's why Pilate was able to put him to death. Because, you know, to us, we hear that and we're like, okay, the king of the Jews, what's the big deal? The big deal is the only one who could have the title of this king right here already has it, and it's not Jesus. So in order for Jesus to make those statements, he's going against the authority uh, that, that is there. You know, okay, that's how it's at least portrayed. Um, I'm not saying that Jesus had plans at all to do that because, I mean, Jesus even told us um, that his kingdom, it's not of this world. His whole thinking about it was entirely different. But this is still what they are able to, to crucify him with. That's why also Pilate put uh, the title 
um, uh, above the cross. You know, this is is Jesus. He's the the King of the Jews. That is what he's being punished for. That was considered a treasonous statement during Jesus's day. And this is as how the chief priests, the elders, the teacher of law, and the whole Sanhedrin. That's how they're able to bring it before Pilate and have something for which Pilate could actually crucify him for. Because you can't just do it just because you want to. You know, you can't just put someone to death just because you want to. They had to have some type of a reason. This is their plan. And apparently it worked. Once again, it worked because ultimately this is the plan of our Heavenly Father. And apparently there was no other way than for Jesus to take this cup of suffering and to be able to, to, to die in our place, to, to be able to be that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And right here, what we find out is that he's making no reply. He's just like a sheep that's being led out to slaughter. He's he is silent. That's what we see in the first few verses of this chapter. And as we continue, we'll, we'll continue to see how this conversation and how the rest of this trial goes. Verses 6 through 15 now. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. There's a lot of lessons that we can get from this. You know, we see that it was it was all part of you know God's plan for, for Jesus to be handed over to the Gentiles and for both the Jewish people and the Gentile nations to all have a part in this crucifixion because as they all have a part in the crucifixion, they also are going to have a part in the salvation that the crucifixion actually ends up bringing uh, through Jesus Christ. We see this man in verse seven, that's called Barabbas. Now, I mean, you know, when you have these two laid side by side, you've got Jesus on the one hand, you've got Barabbas on the other hand, it should be a no brainer which one you choose to release. The one who truly hasn't actually done anything or the one who has done some pretty questionable things. Which one are you going to pick to release back out into the crowd? And they chose to have Jesus crucified. That's what they were shouting. And they were putting pressure more and more on Pilate. And they released Barabbas. Now, I mean, I don't know much about him. You know, I wish that I could say that we, we have the rest of the story. And I wish that this really, you know, I, I wish we could see that this really changed Barabbas. And he saw how Jesus was crucified in his place and that he decided to follow Jesus with his life. And I know that there's been kind of maybe some theatrical representations about that, but I mean, in all honesty, this is what we have. We, we don't see what happened to this guy. We don't see how this impacted him, but we most certainly see what happens to Jesus. They put pressure on Pilate to have him crucified and Pilate, he wouldn't stand up. I mean, even though he knew that what they were asking was wrong. I mean, look at verse 10. It, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priest handed uh, Jesus over to him. Pilate knew what he was doing. Pilate knew what they were doing. 
there's no question about all those things. You know, sometimes we can maybe um, kind of portray Pilate as, as, a, as a good guy. You know, maybe sometimes at least he was the only one who gave a little bit of decency to Jesus. And I think it is kind of important to notice some of those things. But I mean, when all is said and done, he knew what was going on wasn't right, but he didn't stand up against it. Perhaps there's a lesson for us to, to learn in there as well. You know, how many times do we see injustices happening, but yet because of outside pressure for one reason or another, we choose not to do anything or we just choose to give in. Pilate had, from a physical perspective at least, he had the authority to be able to stop all of this right there, but he didn't. He wanted to satisfy the crowd, as verse 15 says. Seems that, you know, this peer pressure that we talk about with young, uh, younger people, it's something that doesn't just go away. It's something that continues on. Pilate had this peer pressure, so Pilate did what they asked. He released Barabbas, and then he had Jesus flogged, and eventually Jesus is going to be crucified. Verses 16 through 20. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. This tells us that, you know, this, this starts in all the mockery. I mean, not only is it enough for your own people to turn against you, you know, the Jewish people, but now you see these soldiers are also turning against him. They are mocking him for being this king. They're putting a robe on him. They're putting a crown of thorns. And, and also there's this, this reed that's mentioned there and that this staff, you know, perhaps that's even the scepter, like what a king would have. So you start to see that they are, you know, even kind of bowing down to him. You know, they're paying homage to him. They're falling on their knees before him. Everything that they're doing, it's a mockery of Jesus being the true king. Now, the ironic thing about all of this is we as Christians, we know that he was the true king, you know, and he deserved a robe, a crown. He deserved a throne. He deserved that scepter. He deserved everything that comes along with being a king. And he most certainly not only deserves people to fall down on their knees before him, but also to worship him. But yet, all of this is done in jest. It's, it's all a mockery of the truth. And it's such an ironic statement, you know, that, that all of these things are, are really ultimately what Jesus deserves. But he deserves them in a so much different capacity than how he receives them. But this is how Jesus is crucified. They mock him. But the soldiers aren't the only ones who mock him. Others do as well. Verses 21 through 26, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So right here, the mockery is kind of continuing because if you realize why Simon, the one who, who right here, 
why he had to carry the cross. He, he carried the cross because Jesus became exhausted on the way to the cross. He went through so much in order to get to this point. And then they pull someone from the crowd. They make him carry this cross. Whenever they get to this point, they crucify him. And then they cast lots for his clothing. We find out the time period as to when these things happen. And we also see once again that he is proclaimed the king of the Jews. That's the notice that is, writ that, that is uh, written above him. That is the charge, the legal charge that, uh, that he is being charged for and the crime that he has committed for him to be crucified. Because we need to understand that the crucifixion was a form of, of them, um, you know, putting to death the, the harsh criminals of their day. And it was harsh to uh, commit treason. And that's how they kind of labeled all of this, that he was committing treason by what he said. But we know that Jesus' kingdom, it wasn't of this world. What Jesus meant by these statements, were, it was so much different than how they were taking him there and how they were able to crucify him. But we see that the mockery, it continues. Verses 27 through 32 now. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teacher of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. We see that he's getting it from everywhere. Not only has he already been mocked by the chief priests and the teacher of the law, but he once again is mocked by them in verse 31 and following. We also see that he's been mocked by the soldiers, but now he's also being mocked by these, this crowd of people. They're looking at him and they're mocking the statements that he's saying. And, and it almost kind of seems like perhaps this crowd could be Jewish people. So we see a mix of Jews and Gentiles, you know, from all these different types of nations, if you will, they're all taking part in mocking him. These chief priests, these religious leaders of Jesus' day, they're looking at him and saying, you know, look, he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the king of Israel. He can't even save himself. How is he going to save all of us? And those who were crucified with him, they also were heaping up insults on him. But in all of these statements, though, we still see the irony. We see that they were saying he can't even save himself. How is he going to save everybody else? The way that he saved everybody else is by not saving himself physically right there on the cross. He submitted to this death. And while hanging on the cross, he does eventually die. Verses 33 through 41. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to, to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. 
Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So we see among this crowd, there is a group of people who they do care for him. And there's also a group of people, at least, who can see what's going on. Notice this centurion in verse 39. This centurion, um, you know, he, he has no reason to, to proclaim this, but he sees everything happening and he recognizes and says, surely this man was the son of God. He saw the significance of what was taking place. He probably was pretty scared, you know, wondering. He just, he just took part in putting this guy to death and all these weird things are happening now. What does this mean? Surely this man was the son of God. He recognized it. But the whole nation of Israel, so to speak, is at least as a whole nation, they rejected him. I mean, they're the ones who, who pushed for this crucifixion. We also see just a little bit of how Jesus felt on that cross because he's, he cries out in verse 34 in, in something that is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, you know, I, I know that sometimes we might kind of uh, read into that and talk about how Jesus uh, was forsaken by, by his heavenly father. But what I, I think that we can uh, really gain from this passage is he's quoting from Psalm 22. And if you look at Psalm 22, which Jesus obviously is talking about right here, it starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as it continues on, you find out it's a, it's a prayer of a righteous servant. And, and it is praise for God and recognizing that he is not going to forsake us even if he even if it might feel like he has forsaken us he's never going to leave us he's never going to forsake us these are promises that we have been given by god so when jesus makes this statement my god my god why have you forsaken me he's he's feeling this weight of this this that, that he hasn't felt before the way that the apostle paul writes about it is you know he became our sin and like you know, he, he took care of our sin and he, he paid that debt for us on the cross. And we see that that he is, you know, becoming our sin. He is this, this substitute for us. Because of our sin, we deserve death. But what Jesus did is, is he took that death for us. Now, people looked at that and they said, well, he's calling for Elijah. Because, you know, Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah. Well, Jesus has already talked about that. Jesus said, look, that was John the Baptist. He's already come. And they did to him whatever they wanted to. What they do to him? They put him to death. What are they doing to Jesus? They're putting him to death. Time and time again, the people of God, if I can call them the people of God, they put to death the prophets of God. And whenever I say the people of God, you know, the, the chosen ones, the, the Israelites. But obviously, if they were truly the people of God, they wouldn't put to death the followers of God, the prophets of God, the ones who are coming proclaiming this news. And they wouldn't have put to death Jesus Christ, but certainly not in this way. And we see all of these, these signs that are taking place. We see that darkness is taking place. We see that, that this temple was being torn. And, you know, all of these things, it even goes beyond just kind of uh, natural um, explanations of things. Because if, if you look at this, this all took place around the Passover time. Well, because of the way that uh, that the, the moon uh, was and, and the phase of the moon and stuff during that time of year, it's impossible that this would be a, uh, a solar eclipse, you know, where the sun goes dark, like what we saw just a you know, few years back or so. Um, 
that's not what we're reading about here. This is a supernatural type of darkness that came over this land. And it came over this land to be one of the signs that Jesus is, is dying. Like this is, this is a big deal. And it leads to the centurion saying, surely this man was the son of God. Yeah, the centurion is starting to pick up on it. And he's perhaps not the only one. We see some other people are seeing from a distance and they're saddened. They're, they're crushed with all of their hopes that, that they have at this point, and they don't know what they're going to do. It really is kind of in many ways a very, very dark chapter. But there's just a little bit more in this chapter as well. Verses 42 through 47. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph uh, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And in this passage, we see that, that this is the type of burial that, that Jesus gets. It's kind of odd, but also in many ways very fitting for him because he's a criminal. And you'd think that, you know, since he was crucified with, with criminals and he was right there with, with these wicked people in his death, you'd think that he would not get a, a proper burial. But this burial is, is one that, that is actually a proper burial. This one, this Joseph of Arimathea, he's this man who... At a time when all the apostles of Jesus have left him, we see Joseph, he's there, and he's also a prominent member of this Sanhedrin, this council that's there. Well, that tells us that even though the whole council plotted these things against uh, Jesus, obviously they somehow overlooked Joseph or maybe outvoted him, something to that extent. Because Joseph was one who truly is someone who is part of the people of God. And he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And apparently he seems to still be waiting for the kingdom of God. And he still has some type of hope with Jesus. And Pilate hands over the body of Jesus. And Joseph gives him a, a burial, a nice burial. One that, that, uh, that Jesus rightfully deserved. People saw where he was laid. People saw where that tomb was. And although it's not part of this chapter, I want to go ahead and mention this. We know how this story goes. This tells us how Jesus died. We know that he was buried and he remained in that tomb for the Sabbath day on on that Saturday. But early Sunday morning, he rose up from the grave and Jesus is still alive. Now, come back next week and that's where we'll pick up and we will finish out Mark's gospel. And then we are going to get to this good news. We're going to get to the great news that Jesus rose from the dead. That gives us hope, even though we live 2,000 years removed from this, it still gives us hope today that we can also be able to raise up from the dead when we have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll join us for for next week for the, the final chapter of Mark's Gospel.